Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the October 10th, 2023 edition of Ask a Leader. Folks, uh, in the last, the latest news cycles, it has never been more true to be very careful in your media consumption. The Disinfo Campaign's World Series is happening. Challenge your known sources about their blind spots while you're doing all this. Today, my guest in the first segment will be UCI political science professor Matthew Beckman to talk about the impossible job of the American presidency amidst legislative currents, some of which are flowing right up to a bluff, I say advisedly. In the second segment, playwright and director Octavio Solis with his new play now being performed at the South Coast Repertory, Quixote Nuevo. It runs now until October 28th, and they're celebrating their 60th anniversary, and this play is the rich and rich in its story and style is a, a very, very fitting selection for this commemoration of their 60 years there. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is UCI political science professor Matt Beckman, to whom I turn for forensics in the Oval Office. Helpful as high-stakes dynamics are playing out between the executive and the legislative branches, especially between President Biden and the House of Representatives. Matt Beckman's work focuses on the presidency, Congress, interest groups, mass media, and politics how presidents manage time, people, and process. His publications include A President's Decisions and the Presidential Difference and Pushing the Agenda, Presidential Leadership in U.S. Lawmaking, 1953 to 2004, and coming out about next summer is his latest book, The President's Day, Everyday Work in an Impossible Job. His most recent piece is in the Journal of Political Institutions and Political Economy, speaking, thinking, and being president. He comes to us today from Irvine, and we are recording this on Monday, October 9th. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Matt Beckman. You are too generous. Thank you so much for having me. Well, first I want to get to, it was your November last year tweet. You're quoting Lyndon Baines Johnson, and I'm going to give the whole quote there in that tweet, because it is evergreen. The first thing Democrats do when they take power is find where the control levers are. But the first thing Republicans do is investigate Democrats. I don't know why they do it, but you can count on it. End of LBJ's quote. Do you want to comment on that and how those choices are working right now? <laughs> I mean, the Republicans are an interesting case right now. When they took over the majority... And I, I sort of, LBJ has so many interesting quotes. So that was one of the ones that I kind of just had remembered and was like, I should go find that. And so I put that out there. But partly it was like you could anticipate that the Republicans are in a really hard spot politically for themselves and part of their own making. But 
they have a base that has all these demands that they can't possibly deliver on. And so, you know, the moderates won't vote for some of the cuts or policies, never mind the Senate and the president of the United States. And so all these things they say they're going to do, slash the budget and abortion and so on and so forth, they can fire people up, but they can't get them enacted. And so it was kind of the writing was on the wall of they're going to really struggle on the policymaking side. But and part of the problem is eventually on policymaking and budgets and things, you have to circle the square. You've got to get to an answer. Whereas in oversight, you can often kind of muddy the waters and dissemble quite a bit. And so it's tempting for a minor, you know, an out party, a party that doesn't have the presidency to be doing oversight of the president and just go kind of as hard and often and, and keep going on that. And you see that with the Republicans in the House, that they, the oversight keeps going and chasing leads even when the leads kind of run out. Well, now let's apply what you've learned about the president's, what you call the distribution of time with these busy work, dramatic staging scrimmages in Congress. It's a, it's a finite item that time. It's a zero sum undermining a president's capacity to be strategic internationally. And I advise, I could ask Matt, I can ask the listener, put the, your country here about where to be strategic internationally, as well as being strategic domestically. And I'm putting out there the thought of climate, economic recovery, public health, and this whole electioneering infrastructure. So given this impossible job, talk about the challenges of doing all that in that finite time, in the zero-sum situation. Yeah, it's an endemic part of the job. It's just an impossible, I mean, you heard in my, in my upcoming book, I, I refer to it as an impossible job because it is. You're just responsible for a huge scope of the federal government, not to mention world affairs and so on. And it, we funnel it through, not like a huge, it's like the president of the United States. So one person at the end of the day is kind of accountable for all of this, and they can't possibly manage more than a handful of things on any given day. And so the challenge is always, how do you take an impossible workload and change it into a manageable day? And right now, there are a lot of big issues that are president-level issues that really can't be done without the president signing off on it. And so whether it's the showdown in Congress on the budget shutdown, which is whatever, a month and a couple of days away, not to mention then all these new world affairs in the Middle East. And so it's really hard. Joe Biden has several advantages in since his time in presidency that I think does really serve him well in terms of balancing a whole bunch of things. So the first is he has been in Washington a long time, been conversant with these issues for his whole life, basically, certainly most of his adult life. And so he isn't having to learn on the fly like some presidents. You know, Jimmy Carter comes to Washington and he's really having to figure out both world affairs and Washington Donald Trump, to the extreme, comes in, you know, innocent of expertise and information. Even Obama, who comes in as a super smart guy and has studied a lot, you got to figure it all out in terms of sitting in the pilot seat. So Biden is uniquely prepared to be president. And one of the benefits of having spent a long time and being a professional politician and policymaker is he's got a huge entourage of staff whom he's worked with over years and years and years. And so he fills his administration with a bunch of people that not only that he knows, but also that know him, know what he would want, 
and that they the trust goes both ways. So he can delegate and offload lots of work to other people to do a lot of the heavy lifting and just bring him, you know, what we think of as like options papers. So they give him, you know, here are the three. We've worked through all the research. We've thrown out all the parts that are irrelevant or are unlikely to matter. And here are what we think of as the three big options. And we just need you to pick one. And because he's so experienced, he can do that in relatively efficient time. And so I think he really is in an advantageous spot to kind of be able to juggle as many balls that are of different sorts all at the same time in ways that other presidents would struggle with more, especially as we head toward the new, you know, the election season, which puts even more demands on your time and your energy. It's that delegator in chief that I'm thinking you're talking about is what I think about when the matter of age is coming up. And it will, I'm sure, become definitely loud as a refrain. So I'm hoping people can bring along this notion of the the two-way trust and the, the capacity to delegate and to know. And you said he's a veteran of policy, and it's also he's a veteran of procedure, which is a whole lot of the those endemically impossible kinds of tasks for him. Definitely, especially when you're doing things like these budget showdowns and, you know, it's like this authorization and that. I think one thing that you notice with Biden and it you know, wasn't true of Clinton or even Obama to the same degree is Biden is kind of a throwback in his approach to politics and that he isn't as kind of permanently campaigning. He isn't always out giving a speech or traveling and running around on a sort of barnstorming tour in the way that more recent presidents have been doing. Sam Curnell, this you know very prominent political scientist, presidency scholar at UC San Diego, wrote a book called Going Public. And his point was, in the older days, pre-television days, presidents tended to do a lot of bargaining behind the scenes and working more quietly. And now we're in a world where everybody's campaigning all the time, and rather than negotiating face-to-face, they're out visiting the senator's state and giving a rally and doing all these things. And... I think that's true to a degree, but it's that it was overblown in that case. I mean, my, my first book really emphasized how much bargaining has always been going on and still goes on. But more and more, I'm totally convinced that it's just a much more effective governing strategy. If everybody's campaigning against each other, it's very hard to reach compromises. But if you're working behind the scenes and it's not playing out on Twitter and on, you know, Fox News and MSNBC, you can kind of reach deals that oftentimes fall below the surface and they don't get the attention, but it keeps the pragmatic wheels of government moving in ways. And that just really is much more Biden style. And so I feel like he has a lot more time to do that kind of work, partly Mm. because he isn't so eager to be running to this fundraiser and that fundraiser and this campaign and the way that Bill Clinton or, or, George W. Bush was even. That is really helpful, that whole perspective. That's great. I appreciate that, Matt. So for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is UCI political science professor Matthew Beckman about what he calls the distribution of time and this unwieldy job being the president of the United States and, and as the executive branch is navigating current and mounting challenges with the legislative branch. Well, the Freedom Caucus in the House of Representatives and conservative Republicans, a minority in whom they represent with outsized influence are increasingly paralyzing responses to 
domestic and foreign threats. So talk about dealing with Congress now. We're going to speak specifically to that after you've given us a really good general picture, especially right now. And I, I want to put out there that the paralyzing kind of processes is, is Senator Tuberville's block on the military yeah. appointments during all the wars, and we can add a new war that opened up last weekend. And then we've got Ted Cruz's holds on the Biden nominations related to Israel. So those those are jamming up where somebody sh- could be taking the leadership role and being delegated those duties. The Republicans are in a very weird spot and they've gotten kind of off track of normal both norms of sort of democratic process but their incentive structures are also just really off kilter right now so if you look at democrats there's kind of a purpose driven in terms of they have policy goals that they're trying to achieve they're very pragmatic about making progress on those they're willing to take half measures and you know, a yard here and come back for a yard next time. The Republicans aren't really, they're not in that kind of world right now where they're tethered to reality on lots of things. And so it creates problems because you can have people like Matt Gates or, or Tuberville or whatever. And because it's so hard to enact conservative policies that are not going to pass and are oftentimes not even popular and sometimes don't even make sense. Like the stuff about the funding for Ukraine and, the, you know, all this dramatic, the, the money went there instead of Hawaii, these kind of stories, they're just not right and they don't make sense. And it creates a problem when you try to govern that way because governing is about like actual squaring circles. And so you see it with gate. So if you can't enact the policies or make headlines in the ways of accomplishing things, you really kind of need to like create flash and bangs and some you got to do something right and so you see it in like the people who get the most attention right now on in the conservative side aren't the people who go do the progress and blocking and tackling of governance it's the people who do very provocative hijacking aggressive things and it feels like they're fighting against the system and so you know gates overthrowing the speaker and tuberville blocking every military promotion um, I mean, it's a lot of visible. promotions. It's so many. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's all of them. He's, he let three through the other day or whatever, a couple weeks ago. But it's it's basically a wholesale block on every promotion throughout the military. It's, which, and it's kind of, I mean, it just speaks to it because that is always available to senators. They can always block things because the Senate rules make it so that it takes so much time to do it if somebody objects that nobody's willing to burn, you know, a whole day on one nomination when they need to get to budgets and all these other things. So they kind of let through the ones that are consensual and then hold off on the ones that will take up so much time. But we don't have this very often. Every now and again, you'll get some senator very upset about one thing, and they'll block a very specific office. Like if they're upset about some environmental rule, they'll block the EPA director or something like that. But this just idea of like, taking hostage every promotion in the whole Defense Department is, is a very unusual step. And they had typically in the past, they were the nominations were approved and in all 320 personnel or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah. In the, no, that was not, the norm. No, they're, yeah, they're not controversial in any... These ones aren't either. Like, if you could get to a vote, it would sail through, right? You'd get one or two no votes, maybe. I, I mean, maybe not even... You 
normally these fly through with unanimous consent. So somebody, some senator just makes the motion and then asks for unanimous consent that they all are approved, and then they're all approved. It takes 30 seconds, and it's just a perfunctory exercise to help keep the military metabolizing its promote. You know, it's a huge entity, so they're constantly having retirements, promotions, leaves, whatever. So this is just routine fare, but he has used his status as a senator to just put a blockade on it, and it, it just gums up the works in, because it's so hard to overcome a senator's objection unless you ta- are willing to take tons of time. So that is the brand, though, for the Freedom Caucus that I opened with in this particular question, and Tuberville's blocking military appointments, Ted Cruz's own holds. So it's the brand isn't like with the other party trying to implement policy and get pragmatic measures through. It's just the sheer act of obstruction or sand in the gears. It's just that makes this presidential role of getting things completed, yeah, running government, I, I like just uh, just over the top, uh, unattainable. Every Republican right now is pretty conservative. Like there, I mean, there's a few moderates relatively, but in general, Republicans are pretty conservative, just like Democrats now are pretty progressive. And so it's like, how do you distinguish yourself as a you know, true believer, one of the real fighters from other people when you all basically vote the same and all basically support the same thing? Well, the way that you can do it is through the performance of really fighting against the system and not going along to get along and not just allowing. And so you have to do some kind of real provocative measures to make yourself stand out when your voting record and campaign promises sound a lot like everyone else. And so this has been kind of a mech. The one I always think back is remember when um, Joe Wilson uh, yelled, you lie during Obama during the state of the union. Yep. And at the time it was kind of like, geez, that seems that's bad. That was rogue. That's a real break of decorum and tradition and all these, but within several hours like he had raised a ton of money it raised his profile and so you kind of see this on the right that like the people who really support there's a lot of energy and money to be had for people who are seen as not going along with the traditional ways and are willing to buck the system and look like they're fighting for us and so it creates this kind of especially if you don't have like Nancy Pelosi with the Democrats, there's always impulses on the left for some of this too, but the Democrats just are still running a more traditional professional operation where people see that strategic pragmatic deal-making serves their interests in terms of getting things done. But Matt Matt Gates isn't that interested in getting things done. But I'm going to challenge you on the progressive label because Nancy Pelosi was able to get barely enough votes to pass the Affordable Care Act, which was a Mitt Romney, Massachusetts program. So (laughs) do we call it progressive or that's just a pragmatic business of the day? It's both, right? It's like progressive aims and taking what you can get. This last spring, Marty Wattenberg, who's one of my colleagues, Professor Wattenberg, we taught a class on Ronald Reagan, just a quarter on his presidency. And a lot of it was because students have no clue. You know, they're so young. So talking about Reagan is just the same as talking about John Quincy Adams. And <laughs> so we kind of wanted to lay it. We did a class one time on Nixon. We have done one on George W. Bush. So we did this one on Reagan. And one of the big points that we kept making is we would look at what Reagan campaigned on. And then we looked at what he actually did in government. 
And you keep seeing that it's like he has conservative ideals and conservative aspirations, but his actual governance is very pragmatic on all sorts of things from tax increases, you know, in 82 and he on immigration. He's very pragmatic on all. I mean, you just go down the line. He's a, he ends up being a very pragmatic politician. And that doesn't mean he wasn't conservative, but it means he kind of took what he could get and didn't just say, I'm holding out for everything and won't sign anything short of it. Well, I don't know how pragmatic that budget was, though, that started the deficit opening up like it hadn't in the past. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm just we're yeah. going to we're going to have to take this take this outside. Well, for those of you <laughs> who just joined us, my guest is Matthew Beckman. We're talking about the presidential calendar and the dynamics. So we need to rush to the showdown you were talking about, that the shutdown looming in Congress now is the November 17 deadline for this reconciling the budget. So we thought that tying up the aid with Ukraine did not make it into the budget deal meted out on September 30th when the last shutdown was narrowly avoided. Now we have the Israel-Hamas war, the, the potential for diverting resources and weapons away from the war in Ukraine. So in Congress, Matt, is it in reality a shutdown now? Is there like a sit-down strike for those initiatives to proceed, the budget to be reconciled, and that the executive branch conduct foreign policy now? I would distinguish two things. Like, I think what we're seeing right now is pretty normal politics in terms of, like, the Ukraine aid, right? Like, reasonable people disagree. They're having to negotiate over it and legislate over it. And, and I, my hunch is they'll figure something out. Eventually, they'll get to this. But the budget showdown is, le- is not normal in the typical way of lawmaking and politicking. And, I mean, the Republicans have just backed themselves into a corner here, the House Republicans. And they're stuck. The requests and demands they're making are just unpassable. And so they're going to have to eat crow or keep the government shut down for a long time. And that gets very untenable very quickly. So I don't know how they're going to, you know, if it's like the question is like if Jim Jordan becomes speaker, is he willing, does he have the credibility with the Freedom Caucus group to come back? And when he says we have to just accept the deal that's on the table, that it will pass because he says it, or are they still not they're going to think he sold out. So they're in a real difficult bind. But the Ukraine stuff, there is my impression is there's broad support for it, both in the House, Senate, and obviously in the White House. And so at some point, they'll get to it and get a version of it passed. It's just going to take a while. In the meantime, you know, defense budget is so huge. And there's so many ways of getting kind of substitution effects and working with allies and whatever else to kind of find a way to get to yes so that you can bridge until the Congress appropriates the actual money that they need. But I will also, that's my guess. I'm sorry, I will challenge you, though, on the appropriations, the next round for the war in Ukraine, that on the opposing side is the kind of machinery to keep looking for creating cracks, making cracks in undermining support for Ukraine. And we can see those cracks in some of the recent elections in Eastern and Central Europe. So I'm just, a deferred appropriation to Ukraine can have cascading effects that are a little unnerving for some of us, Matt. No, I agree. 
it, it's definitely you know but di- people disagree this is what this looks to me more like normal politics like part of what congress is designed to do is help take differences in the population and metabolize them through an institution that can help find common ground or reasonable compromises in those things and i feel like ukraine the ukraine aid is going to end up looking more like normal politics that one of the challenges just always and this is just part of the way the house is organized is speakers of the house they view their first constituency as their own party and so even if a bill could pass with huge majorities or large majorities bipartisan majorities if it doesn't have bring kind of their own party together they are scared to create that riff and have people have take tough votes where they're voting against each other and the ukraine aid right now it's like it unifies democrats and divides republicans probably not even evenly i mean more would vote for it than against it probably but it would be close but so it's like in the house it has majority support by far it's just a question of like the republicans don't want to create a fight among themselves right now but eventually a clever speaker can find a way to smuggle it through without it being just a big floor fight and everyone yelling at each other. And so they'll be able to get it into something else, an end-of-the-year bill or something else. Well, a clever speaker is a a leap here of faith, and so I'll set (laughs) that one aside for all these other little salons I'm planning here. So as we head into 2024, to what extent does the presidential campaign change the nature of presidential work? And I'm also thinking, Matt, about the messaging amidst this virulent disinfo campaigns that can migratory all i mean they are wrecking such havoc it keeps me up at nights so in some ways one answer is that the presidency is designed to multitask and presidents can really kind of do both right you can walk and chew gum at the same time and you have to there's no other option and so the campaign will start and say it's trump versus biden in a lot of ways, we tend to think that things ossify during the campaign year. Everyone's waiting for the next election to see what the next. And so things tend to get put on hold or on autopilot. The flip side to that, though, is there it does create some opportunities in that if the campaign is fighting on, if, you know, say Trump is campaigning and is really emphasizing one particular message, Sometimes it creates opportunities for cutting deals on other issues because the Republicans don't want to create controversies other than the ones that they're trying to emphasize in the campaign. So you can oftentimes have kind of weird coalitions where bills that have been stuck get through because they don't want to fight about that as part of the campaign. And so it definitely changes the political landscape. And then presidents are obviously distracted a lot more because they're having to go prepare for debates and speeches and fundraisers in ways that they weren't in year two and three. And they have to look but, like they're everywhere, too. I mean, they're criticized for not yeah. looking like their campaign, too. So there's that performative part. Definitely. But there's a ton of political science research that emphasizes, like, campaigns are overrated, or we we tend to think of them as more decisive than they are, that it's really hard to change public opinion on, at the presidential level. And that presidential campaigns are really anchored in peace and prosperity. So if, I, if you know how the state of the economy and the state of the world is, or certainly America's role in it, that we're not involved in a Vietnam or a Korea or something, or Iraq, Afghanistan, that the swing voters tend to move more with fundamental factors of the 
state of the world, like sort of how the in particular the economy is the main driver of independent oscillations and votes. And so, yeah, like if you're president, what my advice would always be is like focus on the first principles first. So the economy is the most important is the first among equals. Not getting mired in an unpopular war is the second. And everything else is working at the margin. So if, if the election turns out to be really close, obviously everything matters. But rarely are they super that close. And so if you get the big things right, you don't need to obsess as much about the small things and being everywhere all at once. If there's other things you can do, like get the budget passed or other things, you know, make negotiate peace in the Middle East or whatever your thing is. Those are really more important. So I always am like, when you think of governing and public relations, you don't want to get confused on which is the engine and which is the caboose. The policymaking is the job and really where you want to be focused and that the public relations is following along to like kind of help put a shine on it. But you don't want to do the opposite, which is like you start adopting policies because of whatever's going on in the in the public world and the fights that Twitter people are having. Matt, there's one thing that concerns me, though, is there are the entries to the presidential campaign, the ballot in the general. These there are going to be nominations that did not go through the same process as the Democratic and Republican candidates. And so I think of them as the Rosie Ruizes of presidential campaigns. They they go and they enter at the very end. And people, you can just look that up in the Boston Marathon uh, history. Yeah, yeah. No, but, but they're just, the no labels people are going to show up at the end. And I think that there's a very strong possibility that it's going to be closer than you're saying, you're indicating here. And it's just a matter of shaving votes here and there very strategically. So that sort of public relations component of the campaign you're talking about, governing versus PR, that's going to be a much larger portion of the presidential calendar with those kinds of threats of those on the general election ballot candidates. I mean, I maybe we just disagree then because I generally don't think they will be that um, there's always, you know, third party things. So every now and again, you'll get a Ralph Nader in 2000 where, you know, the, everything is hanging in the balance. Every knife's edge thing matters. And in that case, Ralph Nader really was a decisive factor of the Florida election and thereby the whole election for Bush over Gore. But in general, people who really follow, like third parties are operating at the margins of presidential campaigns. Very few people know much about that. You know, see them, know that they, they're there. And the types of people who vote for them are not your normal, they're kind of just unusual voters. And so it's they're noisy in all sorts of ways. So it's not clear like, oh, that, you know, we often talk about, like, who are they going to say some more? Like Kennedy announced it, his Robert Kennedy Jr. or whatever, announced his campaign today and or his third party run today. And he's who knows who he'll siphon votes off. Like the types of people who would vote for him are going to be unusual and they're going to be very small by the time you get to the actual election. Most people will have never heard of him. I mean, even if we just went out around town and asked people to name both California senators, very few would know who they are. Um, not very few, but not a majority would be able to name both California senators. So the idea that they're going to know, you know, Cornell West is running on a green ticket or something like that is just very unlikely. Well, I'm just putting that out there because I I didn't hear you mention Jill Stein did 
managed to peel up few significant numbers of voters in 2016, though, in the behind the blue wall. So that's there is evidence that it could be a possibility. So I let me just have you close taking a pulse of your students. How are they? I mean, because you've got you're teaching one or two courses this fall. One class right now. How it's yes. called writing for the president. And so it's like the students are, I think like I'm the president and the students are staff and they have to write memos and speeches and press releases and talking points to help get me prepared for various things. So it's great. It's really fun. And how are they responding when norms like whereas Speaker of the House of Representatives is vacated? Is that, I mean, I remember, I remember when the Saturday massacre happened in when I was in college and I was freaking out and it was like Saturday night we're partying and then I hear this and I so I don't know if there's some similar geeks out there in your class who are concerned about these norms being shattered um I would say no Uh, I wouldn't they're definitely not freaking out right so they're more politically interested than when I first got hired like politics is just more salient in the more recent years certainly the Trump years than it has been in the past. And so, you know, political science classes that used to seem esoteric and abstract feel more real in ways that they didn't before. So when you're talking about the Constitution or constitutionality of things, um, and certainly I do president's class, issues that seemed not controversial before now seem very relevant about, like, can you pardon yourself and things like that. Mm. Um, On the flip side, I run our Washington, D.C. program. We call it UCDC. So every UC campus sends students to Washington, D.C. to live, learn, and intern for a quarter. So we send about 25 students, a little more than 25 students, each quarter to D.C. And what I notice in UCI students in particular, they're just great, right? They're humble. They're interesting. They're not at all entitled. But there is a strong desire to do something that matters, to make a difference. And so I do feel like their response to the political moment when I'm really upselling the idea of like, you don't want to spend four years in Irvine, it's too comfortable and too easy and you get good at the things we're good at, that you need to go do something. And it can be go study abroad, it can be what do an internship, whatever your thing is, but DC is a great option. That we tend to get more students and more students who weren't, wouldn't have been as interested in politics in other times or other years or other circumstances. And so, yeah, I feel like they're kind of answering the bell in terms of feeling like they're going to be involved and engaged and do things that are going to make a difference. And so, you know, a lot of people are super pessimistic. And whenever I go give public talks, a lot of times people are like, it tends to be older audiences. And they're very concerned about these young people and they're on their phones. and, And I'm more the opposite. I'm like, the future is so bright. You know, these kids are so smart. They're getting incredibly well trained. They're thoughtful, and they're just the most worldly and global sort of citizens that the world has ever seen, and they're tolerant and encouraging and, you know, so, like, when I look around my classroom and this writing class, what I'm telling them is the reason I want them to think of themselves as staff in the White House is because I want them to start thinking of themselves as being the people who are in the room where important decisions are getting made, and they're really going to change the course of it and it's the decisions are going to be better because people like them are in the room who have done the hard work of thinking of what it is they want to do when they get in that room and so yeah i'm super encouraged about how the students are responding to the 
tumultuous world with lots of uncertainty and when it would be easy to beg off of it and just throw your hands up, they definitely don't seem to be doing that. Well, that is phenomenal, and I'm glad you got all of that in so we can take pause for this intentional demographic taking the uh, the torch, taking the banner yeah. from us in this this political relay we're doing. Yeah, the sooner they take over, the better. Yeah, exactly. Well, Matt, this has been so interesting, so helpful. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me, as always. You are so kind and thoughtful, and I really appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you. Well, my guest was UCI political science professor Matthew Beckman about how presidents broker daily demands on their time now amidst increasing challenges domestically and internationally. We are recording this Monday, October 9th. We'll be right back with playwright Octavio Solis with his play now being performed at the South Coast Repertory, Quixote Nuevo. Si fuera presidente, Welcome back to the show. My next guest, it's such a treat for me, live is playwright and director Octavio Solis with his play Quixote Nuevo, performing now through October 28th at the South Coast Repertory in Costa Mesa at the Sagerstrom Stage at Sagerstrom Center for the Performing Arts. This play is a rich and fitting selection while South Coast Rep celebrates their 60th anniversary. And certainly this, this his role, Octavio Solis, has over the years in this, uh, his work with commissions and all has put South Coast Repertory on the map. The play is bringing back uh, Herbert Siguenza of Culture Clash to play the main figure, Jose Quijano. It is directed by Lisa Portes, supported by some stunning performances by the rest of the cast, with Tejano notes composed by David R. Molina. And a little bit about Mr. Solis, I could go on and on, but uh, so many ways that you may all know his name, as he is a playwright and director whose works, along with Quixote Nuevo, include Mother Road, Hole in the Sky, Alicia's Miracle, Se Llama Cristina, John Steinbeck's The Pastures of Heaven, Ghosts of the River, Quixote, Lydia, June in a Box, Lete, Marfa Lights, Gibraltar, The Ballad of Pancho and Lucy, Pancho y Lucy, creo, que, The Seven Visions of the Encarnacion, Bethlehem, Dreamland, Dia, El Otro, Man of the Flesh, Prospect, El Paso Blue, Santos y Santos, and right around here, La Posada Magica, performed at, uh, the well, here, as well as in many other venues, of course, that his plays have been performed at California Shakespeare Theater, Mark Taper Forum, Yale Repertory Theater, Shadowland Productions, The Venture Theater, Latino Chicago Theater, Boston Court, <laughs> Kitchen Dog Theater. I got a name because people say, oh, wait a minute, I think I remember seeing there. New York Summer Play <laughs> Festival, Teatro Vista in Chicago, El Teatro Campesino, Under Main Theater in Dallas, Thick Description, Camp, oh, Camp Santo, the Imua Theater, Cornerstone, He's collaborated in Cloudlands with Adam Guan, who's known here in the SCR circles. And his, as I said, his relationship spans as 
South Coast Repertory some 30 years, spawning four premieres and many other commissions right up to the present he's working on. He's won so many awards, time won't allow, but just look up Octavio Solis, please, please, please. He comes to us today from Berkeley. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Octavio Solis, and thank you many times over for such a wonderful heft of a play. Wow, thank you very much. What an introduction. I, I'm, I'm tired. I no, feel like I've done so much. It's, uh, you have, you have. And, and I, my listeners know that I, they know my relationship with spoilers, so let's go. I'm not going to be oversharing. There's so much that people can see in the play. I'm right. just going to do my very best to tease them all over. So year, yeah. years ago, I learned from a modern history professor that every student in Latin America was required to read Don Quixote by Cervantes. Was it a cultural imprinting for you? Tell us about your very first encounter and how many, uh, maybe over the years, encounters with this tome. Well, being born in the U.S., my only uh, exposure to it was through Man of La Mancha, frankly, uh, I didn't. I didn't. Never read the novel. Didn't know anything about it. I knew about the tilting at windmills uh, moment because everybody knows about that, and we all know what chaotic means. But we don't understand really uh, anything more beyond that because most of us uh, in this country don't have haven't read the novel. Uh, my first encounter with it was when I went to Spain uh, with my wife. We were there on a three-week trip. We went to La Mancha. My wife was reading the novel while we were driving around the countryside, and uh, we stopped at all the places that seemed uh, like to correlate with something in the novel, and uh, like old old posadas, old inns. We, we stopped at a place where we saw some 16th century windmills. We went to El Toboso, which is purportedly the town that Dulcinea is from. There was even a house there that was touted to be Dulcinea's house, oh. which is very funny because yes. <laughs> she's a fictional character. Right, right, right. Exist. And people were asking us, tourists, American tourists were asking us if they could point us to um, Don Quixote's grave. And I just, I hated to bust their bubble and tell them that, you know, he's not a real person. <laughs> you want to find Cervantes's grave, not, not Quixote. He's a complete uh, creation of his. But that was my first encounter with it. I read the novel and I, I loved it. I read the, we both read the, uh, my wife and I, the James uh or maybe Thomas Smollett, Thomas Smollett translation that was done in the uh, late 18th century. And it was, it's really rollicking, really fun. It sounds like Shakespeare translated it. Uh, it's just really terrific, fun, and uh, insightful. And then I read a, la a later one by uh, Edith Grossman, who's a main translator of uh, the works of Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And she did a highly, highly celebrated, critically acclaimed uh, translation in, I think, 1999. I, so I read, yes. I read those two as I was also being commissioned by mm. the Oregon Shakespeare Festival to adapt the novel to the stage. That oh. was my first attempt with that, with that work. That's why you saw, as you were running down the list of the plays I've done, right. you saw Quixote because that was my first attempt at uh, trying to adapt the novel. Uh, that was in 2009, and it went rather well, but it still, I was still deeply unsatisfied. It still felt like I was very, being very true to the novel, but not, and true, true to Cervantes and his 
and his story, but I was lost. I didn't find myself in there. And it took several permutations before finally at Cal Shakes we landed on 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 what on on, on on the idea that I needed to take this book away from Cervantes and turn it into my book, make it my story, and uh, and that was the way in. That was the way in. And in fact, I ended up being even truer yes. to Cervantes by doing so. Thank you. And there's so much I would love to parse further in there, like how your wife, I'd like a mixtape of, of some of her readings of that. There's so many voices in there. And then so many voices come through in the play. It's just stacked and stacked with with Molina's music voices, your character's voices, you and the uh, all the asides that the that Cervantes's uh, narration takes and all that. So and I want to say Quixote Nuevo is a renaissance play with both a small r and a big r and in tackling this recreation that you wove so many elements so reality and memory and delusion misplaced courage longing borders language home and yes la cineza that that's ash i just had to make sure i understood that because and it ash was in in different languages so i if I, t- I want you, you've already started to tell us a little bit about how you're retelling the story and that how you arrived at turning the story inwardly with your own experience with some intergenerational challenges and mm-hmm. and needs and all that. And I, Frank, this is a very personal pro, but when you, in the retelling finally, you got the nod from above that Cervantes was smiling at your ultimate creation. Well, I, I, I think I, I think I did. I really probed the novel, uh, and and in my retelling, in my rewriting of the novel, I realized that that um, Quixote has no backstory. In in the telling of the novel, there is absolutely no backstory. We don't know how what his childhood was, how he met Dulcinea, all the circumstances of his life leading up to that point. The, the novel just starts from where it starts when he decides to take up uh, his armor and his weapons and his horse and ride out and become this great knight uh, and all the adventures that then proceed to happen. Uh, but there's no backstory. So I decided to take to give him a backstory because I could, because he because I'm not telling the story of Don Quixote. I'm, t- I'm telling the story of Jose Quijano Cervantes Scholar in South Texas, and he has a backstory, and I could, I could work on that. Uh, the other thing that I really discovered about Cervantes that I found really interesting is that I felt that he was a lifelong, I, I felt that, his, that his, his condition wasn't just about being a dreamer. I felt that he was actually suffering from dementia, that he was going through perhaps the early stages or the deep stages of Alzheimer's. Because he's an old man, and that's what uh, precipitated his journey. At the time that I was writing the no- the, the, the play, no, you can say mother, novel. Too. <laughs> <laughs> my, uh, my mother was going uh, through the early stages of Alzheimer's, and uh, and now she's really she's really deep in it. She doesn't she barely remembers me, uh, and my father is taking care of her, and uh, and I also dealt with my my own wife's uh, mom's. Alzheimer's condition, so it really influenced uh, my attention, my 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 skewing of the character in that direction. That he was that that his nobility comes from him wanting to be 
greater than he is, but he but when he's just a man, that's when he becomes most like a knight. When he's simply just a man, then you recognize his true nobility, and it's, uh, and, and and you realize that in his flaws, that he's that he's such a that he's that he's. That he's a, he's worthy. a worthy man yes. on his own. Yes, 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 yes. For those of you who've just tuned in, my guest is playwright and director Octavio Solis with this play now being performed at South Coast Repertory, Quixote Nuevo, which runs now till October 28th. Well, we we can see then it's sort of it, through your character portrayed by Ernie Gonzalez, who sure as heck reminds me of Rick Salinas. I can't, you know, I can, <laughs> I kept pinching myself. But as Mani and Sancho... That is the the character that affirms the worth, and he decides I'm gonna I'm gonna join you in in your in where your head is at, Don Quixote mm-hmm. Jose Quijano. So I I guess and as I continue to race you through this interview, it seems that many in the production were together at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts, and they're bringing out most of them are involved uh, awesome. back here at yes. South Coast Repertory. So if you want, I don't know what role you had in putting together director Lisa Portes and uh, Herbert Seguenza, whom you've worked with before, and uh, I do U-turns every time I see anybody in the Culture Clash performing something, and the U-turn oh, yeah, always... Too. And me so too. I love those guys. Ah, and They're so incredible. And then also yeah. added along with those performers is Efron Del Gadillo's scenic design, Gadillo. stage, and uh, the costume designer Helen Huang. And I've got to wonder if the logos on Quixote's breastplate, if they're all imported car manufacturers, is that another <laughs> message? And David Molina's music that keeps us pumped and moves us through. And so tell us just a little bit about your collaboration with those elements. Uh, well, I've known Lisa for many, many years, but I've never had the opportunity to work with her until we started working on, ah. on, uh, on Quixote Nuevo. The same with uh, Herbert. I've long heard of Herbert, and I've followed him and uh, and the Culture Clash's work through the decades, uh, since the early 90s, because I, I lived in San Francisco at the time. And so I have followed them through their career and seen everything, and I am deeply, deeply fond of their work, and I think it's a, they're a, a gift to the California arts and to the national arts movement in this country. But I never worked with any of these artists until we started working on this play. The only person I'd worked with before in a different play was Efren Delgadillo. He did the designs for uh, Seeing with Cranes that I did last year with um, CalArts at Red Cat on a play of mine called Seeing with Cranes. And and David Molina, long history working with David Molina. He's done a number of my works. We have a, a long, deep collaboration. He really gets me. He's also from San Francisco. We worked on Lydia. We worked on numerous other productions. But Quixote Nuevo, when we brought him on at Cal Shakes, he just sort of helped define it. And the music that is now in the play is going to be part, is now part of the play. Along with the music, we also use another composer, Ed Robledo, who I also know very fondly. And I've worked with him as an actor at Teatro Campesino. And uh, he has at least two pieces that are in the play. Um, but we just didn't want to decide between one or the other. We said, why don't we bring on both composers and use Daniel Molina's incredible soundscapes and sound design and lay deeply layered music for this. So I thought, you know, he would be a fanta- you know, fantastic addition to this. And, uh, and he's just uh, had an opportunity over 
numerous productions of this play now to really deepen the sounds of this this play. So it he, he's deeply woven into the the structure, into the fabric of Quixote Nuevo. So I won't get to cover all that I had desired. I just want, as you were, let's go back to, and it includes the uh, part that Ellen Huang as costume designer could contribute, but that, as you said, the Dulcinea character is not really, oh, it's not known, but you really, it, you put her in so many forms, it was really genius. So I'm just going to give a nod. I won't let you unpack that. I'll let patrons, ticket holders, go and unpack how she changes. And she she is telling what's on she, she's the figure that Quijano is, is processing, Quijano and, and Quixote together. So I guess what I'm racing through to the finish here, um, I, there's two things that, that I think this play, it could keep, you could keep tinkering with it since the Shakespearean 2009 days. And uh, it as immigration policy is very dynamic and the social safety yes. net and med Medicare that you give a nod to and uh, this sort of... Uh, toxic reaction we have when we think of the assisted living options and the assisted living I'm going to let I'm going to keep that there's no spoiler people can see how the name and label and the framing of the assisted living comes through it is also genius so I want to make a parting shot about if I could get you together with Sandal Burke he's an American artist through his surfing Indonesia he was acquainted with Islam and that's where he started making American Quran, which was on exhibit at the Museum of Art in Orange County. And I got to interview him. And what the exhibit was, the chapters or the surahs of the Quran, where he brought the 7th century forward, you bring the 16th century forward. 16th oh, century yeah. forward. If the two of you could meet, I, I don't have to be there. I just have to hear about how that would work. <laughs> okay. But have, are you not familiar with him? Not at all. Okay, well that's that's on me. I'm sorry, but, but it's uh, how but you, you knew to me do on it. To him by sending me the uh, website link, so I've been looking at his work and it looks amazing. So the surahs, then the the chapters that he's written in English, uh, every single word that's in the in Arabic. But he also makes a point of it's very contemporary. So you would recognize where people are. Uh, Asylees are ducking in the desert and caves and all that. The two of you have such such overlapping themes and approaches. Well, I want to mm -hmm. thank you so very much for this heady and wonderful work, Octavio Solis, and thank you for the time today on Ask a Leader. Oh, yes, and I please encourage everyone to come to South Coast Repertory to see this amazing play. Uh, it travels, after it's done here, it travels to Seattle Repertory later this year and then also then moves to portland center stage in the spring uh in portland so it, it, it's going to be riding the whole west coast it's a pacific coast project you know it's, yes it uh, is i'm very excited to see that happen Ta very very thrilled tejano to pacific thank you again my guest <laughs> was octavio solis with his new play it's it's with his well-established play but he's now it's being performed here at south coast repertory Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, next week we're going to have on Roxanne Varzi. She's going to get the whole hour. It's going to be great. So thank you very much for listening, everyone. Talk with you next week. <laughs>